I'm driving through vineyards and almond orchards on my way to a special location to help a longtime friend and fellow photographer construct his elaborate stop-motion setup. He's going to make images of some creatures that are very fast and only come out when the sun goes down. The subject of tonight's journey is the Mexican free-tailed bat. Just outside of Stockton, California, there's a location where every night during the summer months, these bats emerge from under a specially built causeway and hit the skies in search of food. And with a colony of about 60,000 bats, each night their insect consumption can reach up to 10 tons of insects. That's 10 tons of insects each evening. As much as these bats are the nightmare of insects over a hundred mile radius, these flying mammals have predators after themselves. Snakes and raccoons are known to get into the roost and cause significant damage. So much so that if a baby bat falls out of the roost to the rocks below, the mother will not fly down to rescue it. They do this in order not to make themselves a meal of the predators. Sounds kind of cruel, but that's the way life is in the bat world. At this particular location, each night the Swanson's hawks and the peregrine falcons are also waiting in the trees nearby the causeway. These birds are looking for their own smorgasbord to begin, when the nightly emergence of the Mexican free-tailed bats give the birds an opportunity to pick them off one by one as they emerge into the night sky. Baby bats are born at the rate of one per summer season. They roost separately from the bat mothers as high up as they can, higher up in a cave or other area that will be warmer, and this warmth will promote a healthier growth period. When a mother bat returns in the morning with food, she can distinguish her baby from thousands of other bats just by recognizing the baby's unique call. adult Mexican free-tailed bat can weigh about a half an ounce and they're about three and a half inches in length and their wingspan is about 12 inches. My longtime friend and fellow nature photographer David Bozick is at this location setting up his gear as I arrived. The spot where we're at is under a busy road that was rebuilt about 15 years ago to accommodate this colony of bats. This? Yeah, this used to be a wooden causeway that went from uh, almost to the preserve down, uh, it's probably maybe three quarters of a mile long. And when the state came in and replaced all the wooden trestles, they found this huge bat colony. It's like 40 to 60,000 bats. And when they did their reconstruction, as they did each one of these segments, and you can see between the pylons the underneath, there's like these sections that look like grooves with wooden slats in them. And that's for the bats to be able to hang on. Oh, so that's, to this the, isn't normal construction. No, this isn't normal construction. They actually uh, constructed this so the bats could go in there. And I don't know in the future how they go up in there and like replace that wood if it starts deteriorating and falling out. But right now they're very happy and they've been that way for a number of years. His gear is somewhat elaborate with strobe units on light stands 
and a camera on a tripod and a specialized sensor for capturing images of these animals in flight. The thing about it, this particular one, um, this species here, it makes it really difficult to photograph because one, they're like the fastest bat in North America, which... Good choice, you could well, find yeah, a slow you know, fat bat. I, I felt this was a step up from shooting swallows in flight <laughs> because one, when you're shooting insectivores <laughs> that are, you know, hunting in the sky, they're just, they're so random. You can't just really predict to a point you can't, but if you watch them long enough, you can. So this particular um, colony here, uh, I've been out here a few times just watching when they emerge, how they emerge, and kind of doing all of my tactical data collecting before bringing all of my equipment out. There's a river not far from here that's a great place for these bats to find food. So the location is perfect for bat life. I asked David how many bats are up in the ceiling in this area. And how many, how many members of this colony do you guess? Uh, in here, there's between, somewhere they guesstimate between 40 to 60,000. So this stretches, there's one, two, three, four, five, six of these slots that are double slotted. What's that, about four inches wide and uh, an inch wide on each of the slots, but it runs down for about three quarters of a mile. So there's plenty of room all the way along in there um, for the bats, and they just have slowly built up to where they use more and more and more of it. I think it's funny because these slots coincide with guano lines yes. on the ground. So yes. if you want to know where the slots are, you can look at the ground and just see. That's right, and look up. But be careful when you look up, because yep. when I was here the other day, I got some uh, bat guano in the face. So <laughs> These bats have large ears that help them locate insects via echolocation. This is where a bat emits a call and listens for the echo that's returned to their ears. This system will allow the bats to find flying insects by listening to how quickly the echo is returned and if they need to fly left or right or up or down to capture it. The bats in this area do an interesting behavior as they start to drop down from their roost just as the sun sets. And these guys, you were telling me earlier that they'll, they'll emerge out of here in, in, in your framing area that we're gonna talk about in a minute. They do a little vortex, a little tornado, if you will, of, uh, of bats until they yeah, get a big enough group that yeah, emerge, as right? As soon as it starts getting close, real close to sunset, you'll see like one or two will drop down because it's nice and shaded in here and, and uh, the embankment underneath here kind of makes it almost like a big cubby, like a big cavern. And um, they start dropping from the ceiling and then they're, they're waiting to fly um, out and start collecting insects. but. Um, also, on the outside, I've seen uh, peregrine falcons and Swainson's hawks um, snagging the bats as they come out. So what happens is they, they drop down underneath in here and they'll be flying around and around and, and eventually you'll have this, uh, it's like a swarm or a, I call it a vortex because it looks like a whirlpool of bats underneath here and there's, you know, thousands of them. And then I'm situating the camera gear so that they pass through that that opening and hopefully isolate some of the individuals last time i was here they made a um, counterclockwise circle in the ceiling here and that's how i've got this situated and hopefully they don't disappoint me but there's always uh bats that are flying the wrong direction you know kind of like people there's always somebody going to go in the wrong way which is like me you know i'm out here and uh everybody else is probably at home watching tv or something and, right uh,
What is the actual setup that David is using on this session? Let's talk a little bit about your gear and the way you've got this set up. So you've got portable flashes you're working with and a camera. Well, talk me through this, what you, what you got set up. Okay, there's um, five uh, Yong Nuo flashes, which are small portable flash units. And I have two light stands on the, um, in front of the camera. And then there's just beyond that is the sensor, which I'll talk about in a, in a few minutes, that senses the bats as they go through it and it triggers things. So, and then I've got another flash back behind all of it to kind of illuminate through the, the fleshy skin of the bat's wings, because that, sometimes you can really see the veins and everything once it, it lights them up. A backlight. Yes, it's it's like a rim lighting or separation, whatever separation or modeling, light. but instead of being just a rim light, it actually it's almost like shooting in the evening when you shoot towards uh, leaves in the fall, and they're really really bright or in the grass that kind of thing. Yeah. So it really illuminates them, and and um, that really helps out. And so you have uh, so with on these the on these two stands, you got two two flashes on each stand, yeah. so you got a total of five flashes going here tonight. And they're hardwired. So there's actually a cable that goes to the triggering unit so that those four units that are giving the main light coming in all go off exactly the same time so that I don't get any problems with slave units since these bats wing beats are so fast it's not like shooting a model it's standing there or whatever um, they're really fast and you can get a little bit of ghosting from the, the flashes if they're not going off all exactly at the same time so um, they're all wired together. There is the rim lighting one or the one in the back is on a slave. But all the rest of them up here, all, all the main lighting is all wired in. And then it goes into the, the unit that's the triggering unit. And then it triggers the what, camera. What's the, name of that trigger, the camera. what's the name of that triggering unit? Uh, it's called a Sabre, S-A-B-R-E. And it, it's made by Cognosis. They make a lot of high-speed camera equipment. Um, sensors, they got uh, laser sensors, uh, infrared. This happens to be a LIDAR, kind of like what uh, the police use for speeders and stuff like that. They used to use radar. A lot of them use this LIDAR, which is a light beam. And the advantage of having the LIDAR is you can create a window instead of having, if, you, if you've ever walked into a store and had it, had it ring the bell when you come in, ding, you know, because there's a little beam that you break. Okay. Well, there's a, usually an emitter on one side and a receiver on the other. Okay. That takes all the wires and you have to hook them up. And when you take it out in the field, it makes it much more difficult. I used to have a big PVC frame that I put up and I had the emitter on one side and, the, and the, um, the receiver on the other. And then they both go back to the controller unit. But this one here, you can actually create a window, which means I can tell the unit here, I can program with my phone because it's got an app for it. I can tell it, well, anything that's one foot in front of the sensor all the way out to five, six feet in this case, gives me that window. If anything flies by in that window, that means if it flies by seven or eight or nine feet out, because there'll be thousands of them in here, and I don't want them triggering on thousands of different bats, it will only trigger those ones that are in that window. And, it's, and the, the, the LiDAR is able to do that. It's got two sensors up in the front of it, which measure the length of the, the beam. And it won't trigger unless the bounce back tells it it's within that you know, uh, distance. The idea here is to leave the shutter open for a short time 
and the saber unit will fire the flashes when a bat passes through the triggering zone. So as not to get too much exposure on the sensor, David has his camera set up this way. The camera will cycle every three seconds to keep from building up noise on the sensor if something flies through the shooting zone. The camera will cycle again even if it hasn't hit the three second limit. David will shoot about 1500 frames with only about 100 images being successful. So the percentages are low, but he can always just delete the images that are blank from the camera cycling each time. Inputting the proper settings of the flash is an important factor in this whole production. Right. Well, the thing is, is that, yeah, a lot of people don't realize the intensity on a, a flash, the reason why it looks more intense is because it's firing longer, not because it's brighter, because it always fires at the same intensity. It's just that the duration is longer. Well, if the duration is longer, then it's recording through a longer period of time. And just like all of the rest of camera gear, it's trade-offs. You know, if you need more light, you gotta get more of the lights if you wanna use those same really fast capture rates. Now it's a waiting game. It's always better to get to a location early to set up. And in this case, we will be shooting when it starts to get dark. The area where we're working has a slope of about 45 degrees and there's no flat ground underneath this habitat. Large concrete boulders have been arranged under the causeway. Each step is dicey, since your footing is always on the edge of a rock. The light stands are arranged so that they can be as level as they can be. There are two tripods fitted with ball heads on each one. One tripod is for the camera and one is for the motion sensor to keep the sensor parallel to the sensor frame. Negotiating these large boulders in the dark will be difficult, so setting up in daylight is worth the extra time. As we wait, the mosquitoes start to feast on any exposed flesh. The outside temperature was about 95 degrees when I arrived, but under the well-insulated roadway, it's at least 15 degrees cooler. Right now, I'm regretting not wearing long sleeves to give the mosquitoes less of a food source, but we can start to see a few bats drop from the ceiling and start swirling around. It's go time. are starting to swirl in a whirlpool of bats. They're gaining numbers as more and more are dropping from the ceiling, getting into the whirlpool. It's kind of like skaters enter entering a busy ice rink as more and more start to fill up the area. A fact I read the other day was that bats always fly left when they come out of their roost. And it's true in this case, as they're flying counterclockwise. Interestingly, no more mosquitoes are bothering us. The bats are starting to swallow them up as they begin their nightly flight. As the vortex of bats gets more populated, it starts to widen under the causeway. The widening of these circling bats now puts several bats flying through the photography zone, and the flashes are firing off quite often. What I like it is when the flash goes off, you can see the one that... I saw one earlier. Oh, you could just see it for a second right in there. Yeah, he's at an angle coming in. Yep. <laughs> Look at all of them. There are just thousands of them. I wish it was out there farther, but 
don't know how you could do that. Yeah, I know. It's just... There's still quite a few... Let me just hopefully be able to get something out of this. Oh, yeah, there's... Well... So much for sonar, huh? Oh, my goodness. You're getting a, a shot every second and a half. We're seeing bats getting caught in the beam and the lights of the flash illuminating it in mid-flight. <laughs> it it's like looking at a strobe. It is. At a dance. They it's awesome. I've never been to a dance where they had bats flying. But yeah, right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you don't go to the same place as I do then. That's what it must be. That guy just whacked into your light stand. Yeah. Oh, what a beaut. So we can, when we're sitting here, we can see, it's very dark in here, and we can see the strobes illuminate, and for just a second, there's, there's a bat there, fully lit. It's beautiful. And it, it resides on your retina for like a second or two. Uh -huh. You can see that. The bats continue to fly in this counterclockwise direction, exposing hundreds of frames as they go by. They're everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, there's thousands of them here. <laughs> After just a few more minutes, the bats start to direct themselves to fly out from underneath the causeway and off into the night sky. Up above, several people gather to see this sight of thousands of bats heading out for their nightly feeding. The sky is darkened for a short time as the bats make a massive cloud cruising over the river and out into the farmlands. And just like that, most of the bats are gone from under the highway. A few stragglers, but for the most part, all the bats are gone. Now we need to load up all this equipment in the dark before the mosquitoes come back. You can see some of David's bat photographs at my website by just going to imagelight.com. That's I-M-A-G-E-L-I-G-H-T.com and click on the Nature Photography Podcast. You can also go to his website, Bozik Imagery. On your search engine, just click in B-O-Z-S-I-K Imagery. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please take a moment to tell another photographer about it. Maybe make a post on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, as that would be a great way to tell others about this podcast. It can always be searched on any of the leading podcast players, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, and many others. It's important to include the in the title, The Nature Photography Podcast. It would also be great if you could leave a positive review on any of these platforms. It could really help keep this podcast high in the ratings. Until next time... This is your host, Terry Vanderheiden, with the Nature Photography Podcast.